hit that record button and uh, get some levels on you over there. Hmm. All right, brother, how you feeling over there? Talk to me. Feeling good, nice and full. <laughs> nice and full, yeah. Um, Christina did a fantastic job of uh, creating a an amazing dinner, actually. Those uh, those chocolate cupcake things, man, are, I could probably eat all nine of the ones that are remaining over there. It's, I just love, like, her passion for cooking. Yeah. You know, it's not like uh, I have to cook. She just, like, loves to cook and serve people, and that it's, like, extra love in everything that she makes, I can tell. Dude, she throws everything she has into it, and uh, I can just... When I when I vision her as a little girl, I see her like at her mom's coattails, you know, just like paying attention, paying attention, watching, you know, like handing her ingredients, you know, just helping out, pitching in the whole nine. Nice. And so, uh, you said you you come from an Italian household as well, yeah? I do. Yeah, Italian American, Queens, New York, pretty stereotypical. Yeah, There's a lot of Italians there. There's a lot of everybody there. Yeah, but, for sure, uh, for sure. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking to Michael Roviello. Um, we're going to jump into some really cool stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about Michael's journey. Um, he's a gentleman that I met a few years ago, actually in the fitness world. He was doing a different thing back then and uh, started on a different journey that has led him into the world of Wim Hof. And we recently uh, did one of his seminars. It was super cool, a great experience. And uh, we'll jump into all of that. Um, but maybe before we get into all that, you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing, you know, your background and, uh, you know, maybe just start, start us down the path that you began walking as a younger man. Sure. Yeah. Born and raised in uh, Queens, New York, um, born, born in a town called Ozone Park, which is right next to Howard Beach, which was like John Gotti territory. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he was like a pretty influential person. Growing up as a young man uh, in the neighborhood, I think my sister went to high school with his son. Um, so it was just uh, pretty much what you would imagine in the movies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, what you would imagine in the movies. It was uh, block parties and handball and basketball courts and, you know, Cadillacs and um, a, lot of, a lot of slang. Um, so that's what I grew up. That's what I knew. Um, and then as I got older, I, um, you know, moved to, to some different parts of Queens. I lived in a place called College Point, which is right near the Whitestone Bridge, uh, which connects basically Queens and the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's where I went to high school and, uh, had, had done high school there. I went to Catholic high school for a little bit and then back to public school and yeah, pretty much my whole life was born and raised in New York. Until I was 20. Mm. And then when I was 20, I made the decision to join the Navy. After talking to a few different people from different branches, recruiters, just kind of seeing what everybody had to offer. But, um, yeah, I needed to get out of New York. I was on, um, I wasn't, I was on a road to nowhere, you know. I was doing things, you know. I was working as a bartender, actually, at the time, at 20. Um at a catering hall and I had done some tile work with my brother-in-law. So I'd learned some trades and worked in an auto parts store and had taken some community college. And I was thinking about becoming a firefighter or a police officer. That was some things that I was throwing around or, um, maybe some sort of union construction job, which was pretty typical. Uh, guys would go and take the test, wait in line. They'd wait in line all morning, all mm -hmm. day actually. And sometimes I think guys would stay overnight just there, was, to, there was a test for that? 
Yeah, there was tests to get into the apprentice program for mm. all the different unions, you know, Local 3, which was electrical, and the plumbers union, carpentry unions. So that was really common. Um, was that the only path into the trades? Like you had to go through the unions? If you wanted to go union. Oh, yeah. yeah, and union was really powerful, and, you know, uh, obviously all the pretty much all the work being done in New York City is union jobs. But, I mean, you could learn tile or something, other trade, any trade really, and, and worked like private and did residential stuff, and uh, that was common too. Um, but I didn't want to do construction. <laughs> I think everybody in my family wanted me to do construction, but I, I was the one that didn't want to do it. I just wasn't that interested in it. I tried it. I liked it. Um, you know, it was nice to, to learn how to fix things. I think that's important, but... I didn't want to do it as a career. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lost art in the modern world. You don't meet very many men that know how to fix or do anything. I like I mean, I know guys who literally call people to hang a picture. Oh my god, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. But, uh, and we were talking beforehand, and you said that sort of the curse of the Italian immigrants or the Italian family in the East Coast was going into masonry. And yeah, brickwork. Yeah, tile work. You know, it was just really common standard, and you know, painting. A lot of painters. Mm -hmm. So. It was all, all good stuff. Um, I just, I didn't have an interest in it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't enjoy doing it. Um, and I just knew there was something else for me. I didn't quite know what it was. Um, I really wanted to be a firefighter, actually. I thought that that was, like, going to be a good route. So I had taken the New York City Fire Department tests. Everything's tests, you know, in New York. You take a test. You take a test and you wait. And you get it on a wait list. And you wait to be called. And while I was waiting to be called for all these different tests that I took, you know, I was pretty much up to trouble. I was hanging out in New York City all the time. I was got really into like the club scene. I was uh, I used to hang out at a place called the Sound Factory in New York City. is on the West Side. I think uh, I forget what, what what street it was on, but um, I spent a lot of time there, staying out real late, and uh, I got real into fitness. You know, my later teenage years, mainly bodybuilding, which I don't necessarily. You know, I wasn't really fit, but I looked really fit. Right, right. Looked really I fit. You know, I had a lot of muscle. You had the important piece, yeah, right? If I had to if, if I had to go running, I don't know if I could do it. Um, but I was, I could bench press. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the culture. What you know, um, what people would call is like Guido culture. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, and that's that was pretty much my life, you know. I had my buddies from Queens. I had buddies from Long Island. My family was there. Pretty much everything was in New York for me. There really was no reason for me to leave. Everything was there. For sure, yeah. We were talking uh, prior to the podcast um, a little bit about some of the pressures that, you know, our generation, we're of similar age, experienced growing up, and some of the expectations. Um, and you had, you had mentioned that you were feeling some pressure in terms of path, um, to, you know, to follow in the footsteps of those who, who, who went before, so to speak? Well, my parents didn't go to college, so, you know, for them to really talk to me about college, it just was kind of this foreign thing. I mean, they all knew that going to college was like a good idea because you're told to go to college, but they didn't really have too much advice to offer because they didn't have that experience, you know? So, you know, people teach you what they know in many cases, right? So it was like, oh, you know, go and get a good job and you know, with pension and good benefits, benefits and pension, benefits and pensions are pretty much all I heard growing up. Yeah. Very, you know, worker bee kind of mentality. So, you know, that's what I was thinking. I said, oh, wow, the fire department's great. Got good benefits and a good pension. And, 
good retirement and all that kind of stuff. Um, nobody ever really talked about like, hey, what are you passionate about? Oh, yeah. You know, like there was no such thing. Like no one even said like, what do you want to do? Yeah. Like what do you want to learn? What do you want to give to, you know, your community, humanity? There was none of that talk. It was benefits and pension, uh, which is fine. Um, so I was considering the fire department, which was really cool. And um, I, I, you know, I would have been really passionate about that because I actually fell into you know, a similar role just in, you know, I, I went military and it was a relatively similar role. It was a search and rescue program. Mm -hmm. So, um, things just kind of got a little chaotic for me in New York. Uh, I ran into a little bit of trouble. I had some problems that were kind of evolving and I still had not gotten called for any of these positions. I was in college and I was doing well actually in a community college, like my grades were fine, but I didn't really see like uh, you know, any gold at the end of the rainbow. I just didn't know where I was going. And uh, it seemed like friends of mine like really were starting to kind of get on track with what they wanted to do. And I felt really lost. So I was in a bar one day during the day, drinking, <laughs> hanging out on a Tuesday or whatever it of was. Course. And a buddy of mine worked at this bar, and uh, I used to just go there to hang out. And a Navy recruiter walked in, and he had his you know uniform on. And um, I don't know, I think he had lunch there or something. But long story short, he set up. A con he, he started strike. He struck up a conversation with me, and as recruiters will do. Yeah, started asking me all these questions. What are you doing with your life? What do you want to do? This, this, and that. And um, I didn't really take him too serious, but. I was like, all right, maybe I'll give you a call, you know. This is back in the day before cell phones. This is, well, yeah, this is 1999. Yeah. I didn't have a cell phone. I'm pretty sure. That's early in the cell phone game there. Yeah, real early in the cell phone game. I didn't have one. At least in the good cell phone game, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I, I must have, like, spiked an interest. So I saw it ain't going to hurt to go talk with him. So that's what I did. I went and talked with him, and... He like built me up and all this cool stuff about, you know, all these really cool things that you can do. And, you know, he's like, oh, it's only going to be three years. Like three years goes by so fast. You'll be like 20. I was 20 years old at the time. Um, he's like, hey, you know, you'll be like 23, 24 when you get out, whatever. So I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. You know, I could go and learn a trade. That's what I thought because I had the worker bee mentality. I'll go learn a trade. And then when I learn that trade, I can go into a you know, private or public institution and, and, and work that job. So what I had in my mind was I'm going to go to the Navy and I'm going to work on planes. I'm going to learn how to be an air, air, uh, airplane mechanic. And when I get out of the Navy, I'll work at the airport, JFK, airport in New York there, and I'll have a really good salary and I'll have this skill. So even at that time, you had no intentions of leaving the New York area no. permanently? No way. I was petrified to leave New York. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to leave New York. I was That was actually one of the harder decisions for me because I had a lot of friends and I was you know always networking, connected, and family, and this whole idea of like being plucked out of that into this unknown kind of thing uh, was really scary for me. I was like, I didn't want to say goodbye. Yeah. So when you were talking to the recruiter, um, it sounds like the Navy kind of found you. You, you didn't really go looking for yeah, it. Yeah, he found me for sure. And then he duped me. 
Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. He gave me this uh, bullshit story. He's like, oh, well, uh, we're going to have you go down to MAPS so that you can take a test. He's like, you go down there and you get to take a test. When you take the test, um, basically it'll determine uh, what type of jobs you'd be eligible for in the Navy. I said, okay, you know, that's fair, you know. Uh, I'm curious too to see, you know, because then I can choose, right? Then yeah. I could say, ah, no, this is not for me, or, um, yeah, I really like this job, and if you guys are gonna offer me this job, I'll take it. <laughs> and why not take another test, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I went down there. They picked me up in the morning. It was like in a whole day affair. They picked me up. They drove me down to Brooklyn, and I went, and they did a health screening, and they made me walk like a duck, and do all this, you know, silly stuff, and um, and then I took this test, and it was a wide variety of different things like from uh, arithmetic to reading comprehension to I don't know how fast you can count all kinds of weird stuff is that the ASVAB the ASVAB Navy has the same as the army yeah they're all the the same okay yeah Yeah, they're all the same I believe so I took the test and I'm like all right cool great awesome Um, let's go back home ready to go home and maybe in a couple of days I'll find out what jobs I'm eligible for and then we'll make a decision well no that's not how it works when you go down to MAPS, there's actually a guy in a room, and you go sit down with him, and then he shows you what jobs you're eligible for, and then you choose right then and there, oh. and then you go into the other room, and that's where you swear in, and then usually a day or two later, you're on a bus getting shipped <laughs> off to boot camp. They didn't tell me all that. No. So that got really squirrely, because yeah. when the guy was offering me the different positions that I would be eligible for, um, you know, I had this aircraft mechanic kind of in my head and he was like yeah sure that's available you can do that if you want like here's the job description then the other ones were um you know wide variety of different things but there was one that really stuck out and it was aviation warfare systems operator and i picked that up and i said what is this he goes oh those guys are badass those guys hunt submarines they do search and rescue they do this this and that so it really caught my interest and he's like you're in really good shape and, you know i was into fitness at the time or i looked like i was in good shape right, right? and uh he's like you would be eligible to to apply for this position based on your grades based on your physical conditioning you know because there's a lot of school in order to get through this program so he sparked my interest and, um, and then I said, well, where's the school at? Because I didn't want to be stationed in the middle of the country. I was from New York. I mean, New Yorkers, we're like ethnocentric, you know? We think New York is like the best place in the world. This is how we're raised culturally. I'm like, I don't want to go be in, you know, Arkansas or something like that, you know? Um, and I didn't know anything about Arkansas, <laughs> you know? So I was like, where am I going to be stationed? And the school was in Pensacola, Florida. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. It's by the water, sounds nice. So I was like, all right, I'll think about it. And he's like, uh, there's no thinking about it. Like, like you, like you join. Like, and then he started like really kind of getting aggressive with me, you know. And I was like a punk, you know, pretty much teenage kid at the time. And we basically got in an argument in the office. And I took all of the, the job descriptions and I threw it on the floor. And I cursed and I left the room. I said, screw this. Like, you know, the guy wanted me to leave in like three days or something like that. It was. It was just really chaotic. I was really stressed out. I went outside. I started smoking. And I called my recruiter. I'm like, dude, what did you do? Like, you set me up. Like, you didn't tell me I was supposed to join today. You didn't give me any of that information. I thought I was just coming down here to take a test um, just to see where I'm at and see what I would be eligible for. 
So the guy's like, all right, calm down, calm down. Like, I'm on my way. And, you know, New York City traffic, like, it's going to take, like, 45 minutes. So um, he was on his way to pick me up. And um, I'm out there smoking a cigarette. And this uh, this guy comes over to me. He was Navy, you know. He was, like, active duty. But he must have been stationed at Brooklyn Maps doing some sort of administrative job, recruiting job of something like that. And he comes over to me. He's like, what happened in there? I saw you storm out and all that ruckus and basically just trying to talk with me. I don't know if he was sent out there or if he came out there on his own. I don't know. I was like, I'm, I was like, well, the guy was trying to get me to sign up, and um, I wasn't here for that. I was here just to take tests, and no one told me that, and I felt like I was duped, and he wanted me to go in that room and swear in and, and leave in a couple of days, and like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing all that, like, I haven't even told anybody that I'm here. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that seems a little over the top. I mean, what was the argument even about? Like, it seems like the the, the opposing force here wouldn't even have an argument, right? Like, you're coming there for one purpose. Oh, there's an told. argument because the guy challenged me. He challenged me, and I was an egoic kind of kid, and he was right. like, oh, well, <laughs> you're not you're not tough enough for mm. this or something like that. He something gave, silly. Gave that psycho babble. Yeah, yeah. Psycho babble challenged me. And then I threw up fit like a fool and stormed out of there. But this guy came up to me and he says, all right, he was really calm and really cool. And he's like, well, uh, all right, I understand that's He's like, what job did they offer you? Like, what did you get offered? And I was rattling off a few. And then I said, oh, this one job looked pretty cool. I was like, it was AW. He goes, they offered you AW? I said, yeah. He goes, that job is one of the best jobs in the Navy. He goes, you know how I know? He goes, I'm a helicopter mechanic or electrician. Sorry. He's like, I'm a helicopter electrician. That's what I do. I'm just like doing the shore duty thing. And um, he told me, like he just started building up that job. Oh, you guys do this and do that. And they fire weapons and they have uh, torpedoes. You hunt submarines and you jump out of helicopters and rescue people and all this really cool stuff. He's like... I, if I was you, I would like really reconsider um, because that job is rare and not everybody makes it and not everybody's eligible. So I thanked him. He left and I called my mother and I had a call with her. I told her where I was, what I was doing, what just happened. And she basically started crying and um, was just like, you're on the road to nowhere. Like, my mom was single mom. She raised four kids. And, you know, my last five years, you know, 15 through 20, it was chaotic. I was in a lot of trouble. And she didn't quite know what to do with me. And my father wasn't around to, like, discipline me. So she was worried that I was going to end up, you know, doing something wrong and being in jail or just just kind of being a loser, you know? And yeah. so she had a lot of pride in, in the United States and military. And she was like, it's a really honorable thing. And your grandfather was in and all this stuff. And so I took a big, deep breath. And I said, fine, I'll do it. I'll go. Wow. And I walked back in the office. I apologized to the guy. Then I threw the papers on the floor. And um, I told him that I was interested in the aviation warfare system operator job. And uh, that I would want to try out for that position. But I told him, I said, there's one thing we can't do. I can't leave in three days. I said, I need some time. He goes, how about 30? I said, I could do 30. So I went in the other room. I swore in. And by that time, the recruiter finally showed up. And he's like kind of apologetic and stuff like that. But, you know, of course, he was probably going to try to talk me into it. 
And I tell him, well, you don't have to worry about it. I signed up. He goes, what? Huh? You did? And I said, yeah, I signed up. So um, we went back, and basically I had 30 days before I shipped out. So I said my goodbyes. I had a going-away party. I signed a five-year contract because search and rescue is only a five-year contract, like or aviation warfare because there was so much school involved like the navy wanted to get like actual working years out of you you mm-hmm. know because they yep. knew that there's gonna be a lot of school so that was a hard thing to swallow the five-year gig it sounded like a long time but it worked out and i i one month later i went and i left wow man that's amazing i mean for you to go to this appointment with the expectation that you were going to take a test and leave yep to walking away with a five-year gig in the military. Yeah. I mean, what switched in your brain, bro? Was it just that conversation with My your mother. mom? Or? Yeah. It seems like, I mean, based on what you're saying earlier, you, you kind of felt like options were, you know, not really coming your way either. I just started to feel like I was starting to be a strain on her life, you okay. know? And uh, I knew that like deep down. You didn't want to be a burden. Yeah. I was starting to be a burden because, you know, I was mixed up with the wrong crowd and I really was starting to get into some stuff where there was a good possibility I could have gone to jail. And um, I said, you know, well, yeah, it's five years. I don't know what it was. Something came over me and just said, do it, do it, do it, do it. It's like somebody whispering in your ear. Mm-hmm. So I did it. And then when I made the decision, I was like, it's done. There's no backing out now. And, um, and then for the 30 days, the recruiters were like, all right, come on over to our office. And then basically they start getting you prepped for boot camp. And they wanted me to do all this stuff. They're like, oh, knock on the door three times, request permission to enter. I was like, I'm not doing any of that. And I'm like, come on, I'm not doing that. I was just a hard-ass kid, you know? And I said, when I get to boot camp, I'll do what they asked me to do. And the recruiters were like, fine. They just like gave up on it, like, fine. So they would like try to talk to me about the job, but they were like, the military is an interesting organization. There's like support roles, and then there's roles that are like... Um, action oriented, you know, so they had these support roles. I think one guy was supply guy, the other guy, you know, was some sort of admin guy. So they didn't really know too much about the aviation warfare. So they would kind of look up in their books and read me some stuff. And yeah, so like it sounded really interesting, but I didn't really have any direct information. And nobody told me how difficult the program was going to be. They just said it was going to be hard and that um, just keep working out kind of thing. So was it difficult uh, physically or was it more of a mental sort of a situation? Both. Yeah. So I went through basic training. You know, a month later, that's where you go. You leave, you go to basic. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just fast forward, like in basic, they, they started reading out all the different people in my boot camp that had special programs. So I was part of a special program. So there was the SEALs. There was the search and rescue guys, which I was the only one in the whole in my whole platoon there that was search and rescue, I think. So they would put me together with the SEALs and the kids who, they weren't SEALs yet. They were trying to become SEALs, you know. They were applying for that program. And we had to go through like kind of extra psychic, uh, psyche evaluation and just to make sure that we were fit for the job and extra um, screenings on health and all that jazz. And then they would do some physical fitness training that was separate from the rest of the boot camp folks. They would pull us out and we would go do our own training. And the purpose of that was to get us prepared because they knew that the schools that we were going to were going to be more difficult. So that's when I started to realize, oh, shit, you know, like what I what I get myself into, you know, because some of these guys were like in really good shape. And I was in good shape, but they were like athletes. They're like 
you know, I got to Pensacola, Florida, right after basic training, and I'm meeting like my new housemates and friends, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm U.S. slim, uh, state all state swimmer. This guy was a California lifeguard. This guy was like, you know, a Olympian hopeful at one point in his life." And they're like, "Oh, what did you do, like swimming wise?" I'm like, uh, "I used to go to the beach, and I would." Swim in my above ground pool because that's what you have in New York is above ground pools. Right. Um, so I was I was like feeling really insecure. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So was this your first foray outside of New York at this point? Yeah, I yeah, think so. Not. You're a young man now. I visited California once for a couple of weeks, but outside of that, mm-hmm. um, no, I didn't get out much. Like I said, mom was raising four kids on her own, so yeah. we didn't have the money to. There was no family vacations. I mm-hmm. think we did the Poconos once. That's about it. Right. So, so at this point you're, you've gone to basic, you're now, um, in Florida. This is, I guess it's a, a more advanced training for the job that you're going to do. Uh, yeah, that's where all the aviation training is pretty much for the Navy. So all anybody going aviation goes to Pensacola okay. and, um, I had to do air crew school, which is essentially water survival. Mm-hmm. I had to do a uh, helicopter search and rescue school, rescue swimmer school is what they call it. And then after that, I would go through aviation warfare system operator school. And essentially, that's how to track submarines. So air crew was about being an air crewman. And that was wings that we wore. If you ever see a, a military guy walking around with these gold wings with an AC on them, those are air crew. That means they fly. So like you can tell if they're a flyer or not. Um, that was air crew school. Rescue swimmer school is its own beast because... Not only you're flying, but now you're basically a, this first responder, right? Search and rescue you can do over water or over land. And then aviation warfare school was a long school, was difficult school. It had a lot of mathematics and uh, some engineering um, because uh, you and oceanography because you learn how sound travels underneath the ocean, and that's how we hunt submarines. Right. So and all the gear to hunt submarines, sonar and different listening equipment and tactics and all that stuff it was all brand new to me and uh, and I was learning but here's a little twist so I get to air crew school which is water survival and water survival is like it was pretty challenging I mean we had a we had to swim a mile in a flight suit that was pretty tough I remember having to do that that was one of the evolutions that we had to complete and we did a lot of swimming and uh, a lot of treading water and learned how to take our pants and use them like capture air with our pants and tie them up and use it as a life preserver. I've I've seen a guy do this yeah. actually. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, they taught us all that stuff. Yeah, you, sh- you guys, if you've not seen that, definitely go to YouTube and just uh, like search around for that because it's it's a really cool skill. Yeah, but then I took a twist. So I finished air crew school and I'm all excited, right? I'm like, okay, cool. I finished air crew school. I graduated, and now I'm getting ready to go to helicopter search and re- or rescue swimmer school. And I get my orders and like, nope, uh, you're going to AW school. I'm like, Wait, why am I skipping the search and rescue school? Like, I'm supposed to do that. All my friends are, they're doing that. They got, they start class next week. They're like, oh, that's not in your contract. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's not your contract. I'm a rescue swimmer. And they're like, no, you're not. You're just an aviation warfare system operator. That means you're not going helicopters. You're going to go to either the ship or you're going to go to this aircraft called the P3 Orion and you're going to fly around and track submarines. That's what your job is. I'm like, bullshit. They told me I was going to be jumping out of helicopters, doing all this rescue stuff. The guy's like, I don't know what to tell you, but you're going to that school. So I said, well, can I, you know, 
Can I talk to somebody about it? So he introduced me to the head of the school command. It was like a Master Chief, Master Chief Desenzo. Yeah, Master Chief Desenzo at the time, or Senior Chief at the time. Um, but he was in charge of the whole schoolhouse. And he was an AW, but he was like an old school guy. He's been in for a while, and you know he was on some sort of shore duty. And um, I went and I met with him. And he's like, you know, it was real scary to go meet with those guys, you know, like you walk in the room and, you know, you have to stand at attention, you have to talk a certain way, you know, uh, if they don't like you, they'll kick you right out of the office. Um, and I told him what happened. And he goes, so you want to be a rescue swimmer? I said, absolutely, sir. Uh, well, you don't say sir, you say senior chief, actually. And uh, he goes, okay, I'll give you a shot. He goes, if you can pass the SAR in test this afternoon, I'll put you in the wait list, and when you'll class up for search and rescue school. If you fail, you're going out to be an AW, and I'll, you'll never be a rescue swimmer ever as long as I'm in the Navy. I'm like, deal. So he, um, he had one of the rescue swimmer instructors come from the schoolhouse, showed up, grabbed me, took me down to the pool, and I had to do, I was like sit-ups. I, I think I did 100 push-ups in two minutes, 100 sit-ups in two minutes. I had to run a mile and a half. I ran a mile and a half in nine minutes and 27 seconds. That was my best time ever. Um, and then I had to swim. I forget what the, the swim was. And then I had to do the swim. It was all back to back to back to back to back. And that was just an in-test to show that you were you know, capable of at least going to the school. And I passed. And then after that, I got to wait in line and class up and go through the helicopter search or rescue swimmer school. And then obviously after the rescue swimmer school, I went to the aviation warfare, but I almost didn't get it. I almost would have went a completely different route, and I would have been flying around P3s, basically listening to submarines. So it's kind of boring. Yeah, for sure. So how does a guy who, you know, by your own admission, almost didn't make it, even though they told you you were going to make it, um, you know, end up getting a medal pinned on his chest later in his career? Well, you know, I just, I had low self-esteem growing up. I just didn't think I was good at stuff, you know? I just didn't think I was that smart. It's like, you know, I was just, didn't really have any good mentors. My father wasn't in my life to, like, build me up or anything. So I didn't know what my capabilities were. I had no idea. Zero. So um, pure willpower. And I had damn good work ethic because New Yorkers, they, that's what they do. They brag about how much they work. Like you, I go back home to New York, my friends brag about, oh, I worked 60 hours. I'm like, you're happy about that? That sounds miserable. <laughs> right. But that's part of the culture for some strange, odd reason. They love, I don't think they love to work, but they love to brag about it. Um, so I grew up with that. So I was a hard worker. So I really had great work ethic. And I applied that to everything that I did. And even though I, I wasn't the smartest guy, you know, uh, I didn't have the best grades, I outworked people and I learned and I can, you know, read and understand the information and, um, you know, uh, replay it when needed. So sounds like you're pretty willing to take a, a shot too, like take a risk. I mean, you know, signing a five-year contract on a whim, you know, not getting what they told you you were supposed to get and then, you know, getting the appointment um, with this, uh, with this senior official and then taking this test immediately on the spot. I mean, sounds like there's a part of you that was just like ready to take on more. Yeah. It just all kind of showed up that way. It's just like, you know, I, it's just so conf like I think back and I reflect, you know, having this conversation and I'm like, 
it's pretty amazing like how that worked out and it's like you never know like what's happening on the other side and who's kind of directing you and giving you a little nudge in this direction or that direction um but I'm glad I followed that and uh, I'm glad I took those risks and my life would have been really different if I wouldn't have left New York yeah, for sure. And then sure enough, I actually was in school for the aviation warfare system operator because that was like a four-month school, eight hours a day, five days a week kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fire department in New York City called me. While you're in? Yeah. yeah. They're like, yeah. hey, we got a seat available if you want to try out, you know. And I was like, um, my mom, you know, got the letter or whatever. I was like, nope. Yeah, that ship has sailed. Ship has sailed. Yeah, for sure. So how did this path ultimately bring you to the desert where I had the privilege of meeting you? Um, so I did my tour, you know, I did my training in Pensacola. I got orders to San Diego and then basically lived in San Diego for five years. You know, that was where I was stationed mm-hmm. and I had done some training there, but my permanent duty station was NAS North Island in Coronado. So I lived in UTC and I worked, uh, in Coronado and we flew five, six days a week. And when we would go on deployment, we would leave with aircraft carriers out of the NAS North Island and we would go west. Um, so I spent all my time um, west, you know, all over the world, Asia, Australia, Middle East, and then uh, when I was in the States, in California. So when it was time to get out, see, one of the things about deployment is you have a lot of time of doing, a lot of time to do nothing. It's like prison, you know, especially when you're at war um, because there was no pulling in or anything like that. Um, you're just out to sea. And when, you're, when we weren't flying... Like, you were either sleeping, eating, playing video games, or for me, you know, weightlifting or reading. I read a lot. I would, I would just read, 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 read. I don't care what book it was. If it was something to read, I would read it. Um, I would even go to the library, actually, on the ship, and I would rent, um, you know, take out textbooks, like old donated textbooks from, I don't know, the 80s probably, probably old information. Mm-hmm. And I would just find a topic that I was interested in, like some college psychology class or something and I would just read it from the first page to the last hmm. and my friends thought it was weird um, I was always in my rack reading um, but I just I loved I fell in love with reading in the Navy yeah and so one of the things that uh, I was curious about um, your deployment I know you said you spent some time um, in various parts of the world you got to see quite a bit uh, but at the seminar you were sharing a photo of um, you know one of the senior guys was, you know, honoring you, acknowledging you with a medal. Yep. And I'm curious what, what you did, you know, what, what was the situation that brought that on? Sure. So we were off the coast of Guam. Um, I don't know, hundred miles off the coast of Guam. Guam's, you know, uh, the, what do they call that? The, um, Marianas Trench, mm-hmm. supposedly the deepest part, part of the of ocean. The ocean. Yeah. yeah. And Guam is a variety of different islands there. Tinian is there. Guam, uh, Saipan, most of these names you would know because of like World War II terminology because there was a lot of wars for, fought in that area between the United States and the Japanese. And, you know, the Japanese had claimed that land, the United States had come in and pushed back. And uh, we used to operate in that area quite a bit. Um, we had naval base, Air Force base in uh, Guam. So we would spend a lot of time there. We were like 100 miles off the coast. And we were flying with passengers, actually. We had a couple of guys on our helicopter. We used to fly this flight called Plane Guard. And Plane Guard was pretty simple. You fly for three hours, you wear a wetsuit, and you wait for somebody to crash. If nobody crashes, you land, 
you swap out crews and the next crew comes and flies for three hours. And that rotation is always happening all the time. Hmm. So as long as there's flight operations, there's a helicopter airborne. We're the first to take off, the last people to land in case uh, one of the aircraft misses and can't land, ejects, if somebody gets blown off the ship, falls off the ship, you name it. Now, is this a common happening? Yeah, stuff happens out there yeah. for sure. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, people get blown off the ship. Really? Okay. People jump off the ship. Do they? Yeah, try wow. to commit suicide. Yeah, stuff happens. So we were flying plane guard, really standard routine flight. Boring, you know, usually I would sit in the back in my flight suit and read a book or something or chit chat. But this flight was a little unique because we had two passengers on board. And the passengers were people from the ship that basically petitioned to get a joyride in a helicopter. So we would accommodate them. They would come on the helicopter with us. You know, they got to take pictures and, you know, a day in the life of a rescue swimmer kind of stuff. Right. And it was just like a good deal for them, you know. Usually they were like high performers in whatever area they were in, their job. And it was like totally like good deal for them. For us, it was kind of fun because it was like, all right, you know, we can entertain these guys for three hours. But sometimes it was pain in the ass. It's like, oh, we got to bring these guys out, fly around in circles, you know. Uh, we don't want to babysit, right? Right. But we would play little jokes on them and stuff because, like, there was this um, piss tube. Because when we have to go to the bathroom, you piss out of the funnel, and then the tube goes out the bottom of the helicopter. <laughs> and you know how many people piss in there? Like, like over and over and over. Nobody washes the piss tube. It's disgusting. So people don't know what that is. So we would say, oh, like, I can't hear you. Like, and have them, like, talk into the piss tube, you know? Um, because they had no idea, like, the mechanics. So we would play jokes and, and stuff like that. Uh, but this flight, we were just flying around. And we get a radio call. A radio call said that we had to vector out like 40 miles or yeah, something like that. And you never really go outside the 20-mile range. Mm. So I thought that was odd. I said, well, why do they want us to go outside of range of the ship? Like, that's odd. And they didn't quite tell us what was going on yet. And this was the tower. And uh, long story short, we're like, okay, we're going to precautionary rig the cabin for rescue just in case something's going on. We don't know, but we're inbound. So we rigged the cabin for rescue, and uh, an F-18 Hornet pilot had ejected. He had crashed and ejected, and uh, fuselage and you know aircraft parts were floating around, and he was floating around out there too. And uh, we spotted him after doing our, our search, and uh, we, we, we rescued him. We plucked him out of the water. But as we were plucking him out of the water, the hoist failed so it's a hydraulic hoist and it uses hydraulic pressure to you know raise human bodies outside the water and typically we would stay in like a 70 foot hover wow and we were rescuing him and the hoist failed so long story short i had to do a bunch of emergency procedures it didn't work i had to do these emergency procedures and i was able to get this guy in the aircraft and uh get the rescue swimmer into the aircraft because i was operating as a crew chief so it's like you know, one guy's a swimmer, one guy's a crew chief, and we would swap out, you know, usually based on seniority. Um, but we, we saved him. We got him on board. We flew him back to the ship. He got the medical treatment that he needed. The Navy lost the aircraft, of course. And um, maybe a month later, they gave me and the rest of the crew a medal for it wow. for the successful rescue of a downed aviator off That's the amazing. coast of Guam. Yeah, so 
I'm always curious about that. Uh, have you seen that movie on Netflix, that documentary about the one Italian kid who was in the service? Uh, I forget the name of it. It's, um, but he uh, basically ends up surviving in the ocean for like 47 days or some yes. shit like that, something crazy like that. Yes. And they get passed up a couple of times. They're not found. So oh, and then he was captured. Yeah, he was captured yes. and you know basically rides out the rest of the war oh, as a POW. Something like unstoppable, unbreakable, un- unbreakable. Yeah, yes. something I like saw it in the movies. Great movie. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy. Yeah, I had hard life. Yeah, I hadn't heard that story before. Um, but that was amazing, and uh, it got me thinking about you know how hard, just how hard is it to find someone out in the middle of the ocean? Like, really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, especially at nighttime or on night vision goggles. We would do our search, and you can't see shit. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing like guiding you in. There's like nothing, no. no like tracking devices or if it's a pilot. Yeah, sure. We have some help because they have, um, these beacons that go off and there's different beacons and we can tune in the beacon and get a general idea of the area that he's in. And then if he's conscious, he can pull out a flare and give us a heads up. But if it's just some lost person out at sea or small boat and they don't have that stuff or that stuff's not with them. No, it's really difficult to find. Yeah. Because the white caps of the the waves that roll over, Mm -hmm. you know, say it plays games with your mind. You think that's something, but it's nothing. Yeah. I can imagine that that gets very, very confusing after a while. Oh yeah. Staring at the same, you know, little peaks, white caps, like what could that be? Debris, a person, you know, I mean, how do you even know? Just, Buzz it, go fly by, get lower. That's it. That's all you got. Just double check. Nope, nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, we would do su- surface search all the time. We, you know, we put in a pattern in the aircraft, and the pilots would just fly this very specific pattern, and we would do the sweep. It was like a technique that you use with your head, mm-hmm. and we would sweep, and we would look. And so look you guys just kind of grid everything off and then fly the grid or look the grid over? Exactly. Everything strategic. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So, yeah. so That's that pretty crazy. Navy. Yeah, Pretty search crazy. and rescue program. I got a medal for that. That was cool. I felt really proud. I was, I, you know what I was really proud about? Not that rescue. I mean, of course, I wanted to make sure the guy was safe and pilot was safe. He was one of ours. Mm-hmm. Really proud of all that. I was really proud how calm I stayed under pressure. Because you train, you train, you train, you train. But you never know you never how you're going to react, yeah. you know, until the real thing happens. And after that moment, my confidence went through the roof. I was confident up to that point, you know, because I was learning stuff and had that good work ethic. But when I learned how I, w- I was really able to stay relatively calm under pressure and, um, and I got rewarded for that, um, that was really special. And shortly after that, I had gotten another medal that my commanding officer actually chose me to be, uh, uh, to be the air crewman of the year for the entire United States Navy. Wow. Yeah, so because of uh, some of the programs that I was managing and some of the feedback from my, you know, my chiefs and the rescue I had done successfully and everything went well and there was obviously problems. So there was probably a lot of factors that they looked at. I'm not too sure how they came to the decision. But that was probably one of my proudest moments when I became um, Air Crewman of the Year for the whole U.S. Navy and I got a medal for that, and uh, I was really fast-tracking. I was really, um, I had options, you know. I was respected in my command. I was respected uh, within the Navy. People, you know, some people, they knew about me, and um, I pretty much could have went anywhere I wanted to and uh, been an instructor and all that kind of stuff. That is super interesting, bro. So you obviously had a successful career 
in the service and I met you, you know, post service, you were actually, you were doing some work with the military, but you weren't like an active part. Exactly. And, um, you know, so I'm curious that, you know, after you have a certain amount of success in one field, you know, was it, wasn't it hard to walk away from that? Like, you know I, what I mean? Like, they, they were the, actually, it was one, one of my bosses. He was, he had just become chief and I really liked him. We got along really well. He was real laid back and cool. And I always got along with the laid back military. If you were laid back military and you were squared away, I liked you. If you were like real stiff, I stayed away from you. Cause you know, I was laid back and you know, but I got the job done, you know, and the, the pilots liked me, you know, I, I, I got shit done. But this one guy, um, yeah, one of my chiefs, he was uh, he was a new chief at the time, but he was surprised. He's like, what are you, crazy? You're leaving? Like, what are you, you air crewman of the year? Like, like you do whatever you want. You want to go to the RAG squadron and become a flight instructor? Like, like I could right do that for you. If you want to go to rescue swimmer school and become a search and rescue instructor at the schoolhouse, like, that was all an option. I had options. And they couldn't understand why I was willing to get out. And a lot of them came one by one and started to talk to me. Because like, oh, this guy would come and talk to me and I would tell him no. And then they would try like a different guy with a different <laughs> approach, with a different tone. They tried. But I don't know what it was. I wasn't frustrated with any of them. I liked all of them. I liked the community. I had great friends. I loved everybody there. Um, I was sick of going out to sea, to be honest with you. I was like, I'm sick of going out to sea. I was just sick of being out there eight, nine months at a time. It's boring. Um, you know, deployment is part of the gig. That's just part of it. There's no getting out of it. And um, I kind of, I had this desire to like live a normal life. Like I just like wanted to live a normal life. I wanted to be able to commit to plans. I always hated like when a friend of yours was getting married or something and they'd be like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm getting married on this date. Uh, we really want you to come to my wedding, you know? I'm like, well, maybe. I don't know. I got to check my ship deployment schedule. I might be out to sea. And because of the wars that were going on, you know, um, we were always out to sea. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, well, that whole 9-11 conflict, I think we, we, we left for deployment in November 2001. I think we got to Afghanistan sometime in November. So, like, it was that fast. We were there. And then Iraq War was two, February 2003. We left for deployment in February 2003 on our way there. So, like... We were, we were, it was just high tempo and I didn't see the tempo slowing down and sure enough, it still hasn't cause we're still at war. Um, so the tempo hasn't slowed down and I know a lot of guys have been really burnt out. Um, so yeah, this thing just keeps dragging on and on. And yeah. On. It's insanity. Yeah, I know. It's, I, I didn't know much about how stuff worked back then. I just kind of woke up, put my pants on and did my job. <laughs> When I got out, I started looking. And I said, "Oh wow, there's a lot of other stuff going on." Yeah, you look look up and look around, and yeah. it's like, "Whoa, man, I'm I'm missing a few things here." Yep, good old military industrial complex. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, you know? so, so, corporate. Yeah, <laughs> it's not military. It's corporate. It's yeah, different. Exactly. So I learned about that stuff after, but I really liked what I did, and I enjoyed everything. But I want I had the desire to live a normal life, yeah. whatever that means. And I actually went, and I moved to Arizona. And I bought a house in Scottsdale because I had some money saved up from all these deployments. And I got a golden retriever. So I was like totally living this like, you know, I, the only thing I was mix, missing was the white picket fence, <laughs> you know. Um, so I was really trying to just have some stability. Stability was really important to me at that moment in my life. And I was 25 years old. I bought my first house. I moved to Arizona because a friend of mine who I grew up with in high school, 
he had moved here first and I came to visit and I said, wow, this place is beautiful. And it was affordable because living in New York broke, you know, we didn't have nothing. Um, buying a house, yeah, ha, 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 good luck. You want to buy a house with a garage and a pool? Yeah, sure, maybe when you're 50. Um, San Diego was getting like that too. It was really pricey. Mm -hmm. But in Arizona, I was living in Scottsdale, which was like one of the nicer areas of Phoenix, right, at the time. Yep. And I was able to buy a house. And the house had a built-in pool. and had a two-car garage. and had three bedrooms. And it was like $240,000. And that to me was unheard of. So I said, I'm, I'm moving to Arizona. And I bought a house immediately. And I got a job. Right on. Entry level, you know. Yeah. Job. For sure. And I think, uh, I'm not sure how long you had been here when we met, but I know that you, you had some business interest because you had started working with uh, another friend of yours in Find My Fit, and that's how you and I met doing CrossFit events. Um, but I think the thing that's most interesting to me or the question that, that um, sort of comes up for me now is after reconnecting with you after a couple of years and seeing this, this sort of transformation, you know, and I know you've gone through a lot of different transformations, a lot of iterations of yourself, over the years, but going from military guy to corporate guy to now doing more sort of a laid back lifestyle, chill lifestyle, and you're into the Wim Hof stuff and you're talking to me about plant medicines and mm, yeah. all this kind of stuff, man. So, you know, what brought that on? I mean, that's uh, that's that's like a 180 degree turn, right? How does this transition come into play? So when I got out of the Navy, well, I was reading a lot when I was in the Navy. I was actually real, reading all kinds of books, like real estate books and investing books. And I really wanted to learn about money because I, I, I knew nothing about money. I, I wasn't raised to understand how money works or anything. So I really got interested in business like when I was, like prior to getting out. And um, I wanted to learn how to do stuff, you know? Um, so... When I got out and I decided to go the civilian route, I started to work um, at a university. It was a private university, biggest one in the world, actually, at the time. And I think we had like 500,000 students or something crazy. Well, maybe like three and change, a lot. I don't even know the numbers, but a lot of students. We had the highest student population in the world. We had campuses all over the world and all over the country and online and all that. So I got in an entry-level position and, you know, I needed a job, of course, because I had bought a house and you have to pay the bills. And I had gotten some roommates to help chip in and, you know, they would pay me to rent a room. And so I was kind of really responsible. Yeah, I was really responsible at 25. And I wanted to go back to school. I always felt inferior not having my degree when I was in the service because all the pilots that we would fly with, they all had their degrees. They were officers. That's a requirement for them, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't have a degree, and I don't know why. I just really wanted one. I was like, oh, I want to go back to school and get a degree. I hated not having one for some weird reason. So that was my goal. Get a job, go back to school, and uh, get my degree, and obviously pay for my house. And I did. And I was super productive. I was a machine because I came out of the Navy with all this confidence and I could do anything, you know, I was search and rescue and, you know, my boss would tell me to do X, Y, and Z. I was like, really? That's all you want me to do? Okay. <laughs> you know, sure. No problem. You'll pay me for that. Um, just the level of responsibility that we learn in the military and how that translates into civilian sectors sometimes really way off, but 
it was cool. I worked in a department that was all military affiliated. So my boss was ex-military. My teammates were ex-military. The whole entire department was ex-military. All different branches were all veterans. So it was really nice. It was a nice transition. And I got to, you know, continue speaking the kind of military jive and all that. And uh, it really worked out good. And I was successful at it. I was making good money then because I was getting lots of raises because I was pr- I was productive and moving up the chain and becoming a manager and director, senior director, all that stuff. That's the danger zone, bro, right there. That's the stuff that keeps you there. The golden handcuffs. That's it, man. Yeah, I know. I didn't know about golden handcuffs. It was not even in my consciousness, you know. Um, but I I was really productive. But, you know, everything just sounds wonderful and beautiful. Like, oh, wow, look at Michael, like an all-American hero kind of thing. But inside, I was a mess. And nobody knew that. The only people that knew that was my girlfriend at the time. She lived on and off with me for like six years. So she got to see Michael day to day without the mask on, you know? Because when you're home, it's like you really kind of let your guard down, right? Mm -hmm. But when I was at work, I was productive. And I did what I had to do. And I went to school. I got my bachelor's degree at night while working full-time. I went back to school. I got an MBA while working full-time. I went back to school again and finished a master's degree in adult education and training. I had a thirst for knowledge that I will never understand. And I don't know why I did it. It was really unnecessary to get off that college, to be honest with you. But um, I was just doing it. And there was some money to be made, you know, I was getting my GI bill was paying for it. So finance, there was a financial piece of it. Um, I would work during the day, pretty much nine to six was my hours for many years on the weekends. And during the week in the evenings, when I wasn't doing homework, I was drinking, 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 drinking. And I would drink till I would black out actually. Now, where did this come from? I drank hard in the Navy and I had drank prior to the Navy. So this didn't just start? No, but I was responsible. I would, I would make sure that the drinking wouldn't affect my day job. Mm. You know, you'd always see the guys in the Navy that were like getting, uh, uh, like lower rank or something because they did something stupid out in town and getting in trouble. Like I always stayed out of that kind of trouble for the most part. Um, and I still like, put my pants on, went to work every day kind of thing. But that was my way of escape. I was escapism. I was in escape. That's what I did. I would just want to escape from the pressure of the responsibility. And ultimately, like when I reflect on it now, I was really just searching for happiness too, you know. I was drinking and that would give me this surge in happiness, you know, from being drunk. Um and um, I was buying a bunch of unnecessary things. Yeah. You, you know, know? Were, were you really happy though? Or no. In those moments or are you just kind of numb? Like it sounds like you're just, yeah. you know, wanting to just shut everything off. Shut it off. Just be. Just be. Yeah. Uh, shut it off. Get a spike in serotonin or something. I don't know. But um, it was just a habit. And I overdrank. And that was acceptable behavior to overdrink. Shots and all that is part of the culture. We commend each other for it. Mm. We give you high fives, you know, because you can drink so much. It's so stupid, but that's what we do. The military culture is very much like that. Corporate culture is like that. You know, the old happy hour, hang out with the guys, meet the ladies kind of thing. So, yeah, I got caught up in all that for many years. And it wasn't new when I moved to Arizona. I was drinking like that in the military. And I was drinking like that before I joined the military, actually. It was just this thing that stayed with me. 
But um, what really started to, sh and I was searching for happiness through an external environment because I was making a decent salary for the first time in my life and I was able to buy stuff. So I bought a motorcycle and I had a Corvette and I had a Baja speedboat here on Lake Pleasant that I used to go <laughs> ripping around all the time. And, right. you know, I had really pretty girlfriends and I constantly had new cars because I would get bored and I constantly had new girlfriends because I would get bored. Like I did a lot of that and um, all of those external things gave me spikes in happiness, but they all have a really short shelf life. Yeah. The new wears off pretty quick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I see a lot of people today like caught up in that and I just kind of giggle to myself and, you know, I kind of know that, that rhythm and, uh, the whole buying new stuff. So I had a lot of stuff for a while. And, uh, but one thing that kept coming back to haunt me was an injury from the Navy. And it was this weird neck pain, this weird neck pain that would just cripple me and it would just show up and I would be crippled for a few weeks and I couldn't fly, and I couldn't um, do any PT or physical training. And I would go to the doctors, and they would, you know, uh, you know, log it, and they would send me home with muscle relaxers and anti-inflammatory pills and Motrin or whatever. Yeah. So was this a spinal injury of some sort, or I didn't know what it was at the time. And I'll be honest with you, they didn't really take a close look. Huh. So I would get crippled f by this spinal injury, by this pain, this throbbing pain in my neck that I uh, I can't even explain how painful it was, but it would cripple me. But then it would go away. And then it would come back and then it would go away. Throughout my entire Navy career, it would do this weird kind of dance with me. And when I left the Navy, it disappeared. And I just forgot about it. And I just left it alone. I'm not injured. I'm good. And I'm back to pumping iron and bench pressing and doing all that dumb stuff. Broing out. Broing out, exactly. Yeah. Broing out. I was like 210 pounds, you know, like muscle and, you know, I was cheating, you know, using steroids, um, all that garbage. And, um, yeah, so basically I, um, I just had this thing come and haunt me and haunt me and haunt me. And then in 2006, I'm out of the Navy for a few years, few years now, I think 2006, 2007, one of those years, it came back and it wouldn't disappear. So I went to the doctor. And I did everything the doctors told me. I took their muscle relaxers. I took their anti-inflammatory pills. I went and did an x-ray. And they said, oh, everything looks fine here from the x-ray. Okay. Um, but I'm still in a lot of pain. They didn't have any answers for me. The regular general doctor, whatever you call them now, um, general practitioner. So I took it upon myself to start seeing a chiropractor. And I went and saw a chiropractor and he started to adjust me. And he never saw my x-rays. He just, I don't know. I don't know what the rhythm was. But I remember getting some adjustments, still in pain, still drinking and taking all these pills, by the way, um, dealing with the pain. And I went one day to his office and I said, uh, hey, doc, uh, good news. Like the, the pain, pain went away. He goes, oh, that's great. You know, the protocol's working. This is not. But I said, you know something? I feel really numb. He goes, hmm? Like, then he like, really paid attention. Like, what's numb? Well, my fingers are numb and my feet are numb and I'm losing my balance and like things are just not right. And he got like a nervous look in his face. He goes, I'm not touching you anymore. Um, I need you to schedule, uh, go see your general practitioner 
and then schedule a visit for a orthopedic surgeon or neurologist or something like that. Okay, I talked to my doctor. The doctor is like, do you have any um, history of multiple sclerosis in your family? I said, I do. My mom's mom had it, and I saw the decline of her over many years. And he goes, well, it, it, it could potentially be onset of multiple sclerosis because you're having neurological problems in all of your limbs, not just one area. It's not just one arm or one leg or just one area. You're, you're experiencing this numbness in all areas. And I, couldn't even, I didn't have enough hand strength to open a bottle of beer or to open up a can of tuna fish. I would drop bottles because my hands would give out and I was losing my balance. And I was very close to getting to the point where I started would start peeing my pants, you know. So my neurological system was like shorting out. It was like something wasn't right. So what what are you thinking? What's going through your head at this point? Multiple sclerosis. Are you like genuinely fearful that you now have contracted this disease? Yep, I'm thinking shit. Genetics. I got this shit. You got fucked. I got fucked, and now I got multiple sclerosis, and now I'm gonna have to figure out how to live a happy life with this shit. And I was miserable waiting for my MRI appointment and had to wait like three weeks or something like that. So it was like a lot of building up. And it gave me time to really reflect about my life. And um, I knew I was kind of going hard for a while and I was making some bad decisions. I didn't like my thought process. I was numbing like crazy. I had a lot of anger. I was angry. I was really angry. Why were you angry though? It seems like, you know, as an outsider looking in, you're like Johnny All-American hero here. It was all show. Good job, you know. It was but all show. Just you're living, so you're like living the externalities for other people. Absolutely. It was all show. It was all for other people. I looked fantastic on paper. I was handsome. I was in great shape. I had a good job. I had a gorgeous girlfriend. I had a nice house. I had a boat. My family was proud. I did it. I bought my own house at 25. I got three degrees, not even one. Half of my family, they don't have any fucking degrees. I had three. I was an overachiever just trying to find some sort of happiness of some kind. And I was getting applauded. And I was feeding off of that. But inside, I had like a real unhappiness for sure. Um, But I didn't know that at the time. I really didn't even understand that. You know, I was just being productive because that's what you're supposed to do in society, right? You're supposed to be a productive person in society and work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard. So do you think maybe there's a part of you that sort of locked into this pattern of, you know, the more I achieve, the more, you know, respect, the more accolades I receive from people, the better I feel kind of a thing? Yeah, I think so. Yep. And, um... I wasn't feeling, I was doing some self-reflection during those weeks. I was really scared and I was talking to my family a lot and they were really nervous for me and they were waiting for my appointment so that I could get the results so that we would finally know. And I never forget, I showed up to that neurologist appointment and he scheduled me for the MRI. And you know how these neurology doctors are. They're like robots. They're like, there's no, there's like no emotion, you know, no emotion just looking at me and talking to me about MS and then, you know. So they were planting the seed as well. Yeah, they, they that's, basically that's said they that a, it's a possibility. They said it's a possibility. You're having neurological uh, degradation in all of your limbs and um, you have this in your genetic code because your grandmother had it, yada, yada, yada. So I never forget this one guy. He came in and he talked to me. I go into the MRI appointment. This guy comes and talks to me and he's a staff member. He's not the 
radiologist or whatever. He's not a doctor. He's like, he operates the machine, you know? And he was ex-military, and he saw that I was military, so we started talking some military jive. And, um, yeah, he started talking with me. And uh, I told him uh, what was going on and what I was here for, my appointment. And he saw the scared look on my face, and um, he put me in the machine. And, you know, you know the whole thing yeah. they did MRI of my head because that's how they check for MS they check for lesions in your, your brain in yeah. your brain yeah yeah and they checked all of that and when I got out they don't give you your results because the radiologist has to look over it and type up an official report right so now you're just waiting I'm waiting but the guy grabbed me on my way out the door the military guy he goes hey man he goes I'm not a doctor I'm not supposed to like have this conversation with you I could get in trouble okay he goes but I work this machine every day and I've seen plenty of patients that have multiple sclerosis through my time here and experience and you don't have multiple sclerosis he goes you're gonna have to wait and get official word he goes but what you do have is this really gnarly disc pressed against your spinal cord and it's choking your spinal cord and that's probably creating a lot of problems he's like that's all I'm telling you that's it wait for your phone call I just want you to have like a little bit of peace of mind. I'm like, oh, thank God. That dude deserves a medal right I there. Know. Right? And uh, sure enough, you know, I get a phone call from my doctor, my, my orthopedic surgeon. Now I'm working with an orthopedic surgeon. He talks to me and I show up on my lunch break for work because I'm a workaholic. I don't even take the day off. I go on my lunch break. And then after lunch, I go right back to work. And he goes, what are you doing this afternoon? It's the first thing he says to me. I said, I'm all dressed in my work clothes, you know, business casual. He goes, um, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, uh, going back to work after I talk with you. He goes, uh, do you have any family members in town that could take care of you? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, uh, you need to have emergency surgery, like today. He goes, I actually have an opening. I'm doing surgery in the hospital the, off of 51 in Tatum. We're over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bell, 51 and Bell. Yeah. And uh, he's like, we're doing surgery. I have an opening. I was like, I can't go to surgery this afternoon. I don't have any family, nothing. You know, like, I got to tell my boss. I got to go into FMLA, whatever. He goes, all right. He told me that he gave me the rundown. He showed me the MRI. He gave me the whole spiel. And then basically told me on that Friday, we're doing surgery this Friday then. You better get your shit in order. Call who you got to call, tell your boss. I went back to work, pulled my boss into the office, told him what was going on. I went on FMLA, walked into my surgery department, uh, appointment <coughs> that Friday, and I got an anterior cervical. Um, I had really bad clonus, means my body would shake out of control. Mm-hmm. I had really bad neuropathy, and um, obviously all the numbness and pain and whatnot. Now, was this going into the surgery or coming out? Going in. Okay. I had that. So it had de- deteriorated further. Yeah. At this point, yeah. yeah. Because the spinal cord was leaking spinal fluid, according to him, mm-hmm. and that there was scarring or potential scarring on the spinal cord itself. And yeah. So, so was, good news, bad news, good news, no MS. Bad news, maybe you're going to be paralyzed at the end of the surgery kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and they have to give you that talk too, right? right. You yeah. know, so yeah, it was, a really, it was a really hard time for me. I lost a bunch of weight because I was under so much stress. I lost a lot of weight and I had all this self-reflection and I went through the surgery and I had all this. I was forced to sit and do nothing. This surgery said enough is enough with your productive bullshit and your gym and your this and your that and your social life and your girlfriend and all that. You're going to sit and do nothing. So I watched Band of Brothers every single episode 
over a two-week period, and I ate a pound of pasta a day just to gain the weight back. That was my goal, one pound of pasta every single day. And I would watch Band of Brothers, and I would I just hung out and just did nothing. And people would come over and visit me. My sister had come for a little while and helped me out and um, you know, helped take care of me. And uh, she had come in from California. Friends would come by. And I did that for two weeks. And then I went back to work two weeks later with stitches in my neck and all that. Mm. And we went right back to work and we're right back to school. Mm. Right back to school. Now, so at this point, did you start to start questioning some of the things you were doing? You know, like uh, you know, everyone know. has that story. Oh, well, I almost died. And so therefore... You know, I was almost paralyzed, so therefore I'm questioning everything in my life. You didn't have that happen. Um, no, I was so hard-headed, honestly. I was so hard-headed that I figured the doctors fixed me. This was a mechanical issue. All of this pain, all of this stuff that I've been dealing with all of these years, it's now fixed. And I'm going to heal as fast as possible. And I did. I healed really fast. I spent that Christmas healing. I was back to drinking, back to t- playing with drugs. I went back to my old habits of, you know, uh, having different girlfriends and different partners and screwing around and treating people like shit, you know, Uh, what I like to call is like, you know, playing with people's energy. And I went back to work. I went back to school. And that was it. I was like, I thought I was the Wolverine. I would brag about how fast I healed. I said, holy shit, I healed so fast. I was back in the gym in February, you know. And I was just like cocky and just felt I was invincible and uh, I felt I was healed until one year later, boom, 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 that throbbing came back. The same exact throbbing, throb, 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 put me to my knees, couldn't move, went and saw my surgeon, got a checkup. He says, whoa, he says the discs above and below where we fused because we had like a four-inch titanium plate or something in my neck. Yep, they are, uh, they're degrading. So we're going to need to go back in and refuse and fuse that area too. I said, I'm not going back through that whole process again. He goes, you have to. I said, no, I don't. And he goes, all right, well, we can give you some shots. The, you know, more steroid shots, those uh, pain management clinics. That, sure. That's what crock of shit business totally. such a crock business shame on all those people who, who do that you know uh, injections i did so many of those i got so many of those over the, this whole story and um yep i was uh, i was now now i was in a pickle now i was in a pickle i said uh-oh um I'm going to probably have to go back through this whole surgery again. And I got the injections and the injections didn't work. Mm. So um, I made a decision. I made a declaration at that point. I said, well, I'm going to find an alternative route. And that's what opened my life, opened up the door. It's what opened up my mind to alternative healing. Before that, I, I didn't do any alternative healing. I just did Western science medicine. That was it. Pharmacy and doctors and... You thought very mechanically, you know, yeah. remove this part, put this part in, it'll fix that. And um, I was turned on to a book called uh, The Mind-Body Connection by Dr. Sarno. Somebody had recommended, actually Howard Stern <laughs> recommended it, believe it or not. And I thought it was interesting, so I bought it. 
and I read the entire book immediately. I was like glued to it. And um, it started to talk about, he was a spinal surgeon. He was an orthopedic surgeon for many years, this guy, Dr. Sarno in New York. And he saw these patterns of people with all this constant back pain, back pain, back pain, back pain. And he's like, what is going on with back pain? It's an epidemic. I mean, everywhere you go is a chiropractor's office. In any town in the United States, you have the spinal surgeons, the pain management clinics, all the pharmaceutical. And his like, you know, like theory was like, humans are really strong. We've been around for like a really long time doing a lot of really hard things. Like, why are we crying about all this back pain? And he would do surgeries all the time. But one thing that he found was that they did an MRI of all these different people, and they found that lots of people have problems with their discs. He goes, almost everybody you take an MRI of is going to have a bulge disc, herniated disc, slip disc. He's like, there's a lot of that going Truly. on. Yeah, I but think why the, isn't everybody crying about the back pain? Right. Yeah, I think uh, the last stats I saw around that, something like 80% of adults have some form of bulge disc or some kink in their spine or something like that. So. You know, that doesn't necessarily have to translate into constant and perpetual pain. Yes. And uh, he goes into a lot of detail about how pain, emotional pain, manifests itself in the spinal cord and manifests itself in the tissues. And um, I thought that was really intriguing and really interesting. And I never even considered my emotional pain because nobody asked me along the way. Well, you're, you know, you're this young kid, you know, you're like... uh like you said, all-American hero guy jumping out of helicopters. I mean, you're not supposed to worry about things like that. Like, yeah. how you feel doesn't matter. Just no. do your job. Exactly. Right? Just do your job. Do your job. Shut up. Yep. Yeah. So I didn't even consider emotional anything. I thought, and I was really intrigued. So I started to go down the route. And I started all kinds of alternative therapy. I tried it all. And, you know, some of it was great. Some of it was not so great. But I really found some winners. You know, I did the float tanks. The float tanks were great. They took the pressure off my spine. They allowed my body to float. And that was good. I did the cold laser treatment, which was really cool. I did a decompression uh, where they would basically pull your spine apart slowly. Yeah, the, the distraction machine where part yes. of you're kind of like pulled almost like a, a modern racking technique. Yes, a modern <laughs> racking technique. I did that. Um, I started taking all natural anti-inflammatories because I was researching that the anti-inflammatory pills were like really bad for your liver. And I was having liver problems too. My blood results were coming back like with uh, elevated, um, you know, liver um, function. So um, I just learned a ton about health during that time. And I learned a lot and I went down a lot of different rabbit holes. And I actually was brave enough where I went and saw a psychiatrist because that's Western medicine, right? You go see a psychiatrist. And you went and you go and you talk to a lady and I would do, I was a bully. She had no chance with me. You know, she was trying to like, it was like mental warfare. I was like having fun with her. Like, yeah. how can I dupe her? You know? And like, she, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really resonating with any of that, but she diagnosed me with PTSD and she, um, um, I mean, she didn't really know what to do with me. You know, I wasn't listening, you know, to her advice. I was still stubborn. And um, it's really what, what started the whole thing, just really started getting me into emotional learning and really started me on my path um, of uh, self-healing. So then I started to uh, reach out uh, and learn about guys like Eckhart Tolle and Dr. Bruce Lipton, biology of belief. And I started getting into metaphysics like Edgar Cayce, father of holistic medicine. Uh, he was a psychic from the 1800s. Um, I just had this burst and desire to learn about spirituality. 
for some reason, I was so fascinated by spirituality. Because I used to think, I said, man, I'm not balanced. You know, I learned. I was like, I'm like, all right, I'm physically fit, or at least I thought I was. It looked like I was. You know, mentally, I was really strong because I had gotten all these degrees and I had read a lot of books and watched a lot of documentaries and I can keep up in pretty much all conversations. Spiritually, I was a P. I was a zero. I mean, I had dumped the Catholic religion years ago. I was very stereotypical Italian-American Catholic and I wasn't interested in what they were doing. I wanted to know part of what they were doing, you know? Mm-hmm. I just saw it as like a ruling class, you know? Yeah. Um, so I dumped that and I never really picked up anything else. So I didn't wasn't doing anything spiritually. I just didn't even consider it. So when I started to learn about spirituality, um, what I was connected with the most, what really like pulled at my heart was the Native American traditions their version of spirituality. And I had been interested in ancient history. So, you know, through all of this ruckus, um, because I still always had this quest for learning and thirst for learning, I was studying ancient civilizations, you name it, all over the globe. I knew about Egypt. I knew about Gobekli Tempe. I knew in Turkey. I knew about, um, you know, Mayan, Teotihuacan. I knew about the Incas. I knew about the Aborigines in Australia, the East and the Tibetan monks and all that stuff. And I had no idea why I was learning all of it. And I was just fascinated. And I read it and studied it as if I was getting a degree in anthropology and history. So what was it about that course of action that sort of kept you engaged? Though I mean, you may not have known why you started, but there was something that kept you coming back, right? Um, I started to, I was very, I was always a bit rebellious. And I was really annoyed at like the government. I was just like, 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 why didn't they share this stuff with us? I was just like, I learned this bullshit story, like growing up in high school and middle school of history, and I just didn't like the way it was painted. And um, I was really, like, upset and angry at the fact that the Native American people of, let's just say, the present-day United States, like, their traditions and their teachings weren't really considered. It was just like they were put in a corner and, like, told to shut up and... There was just this, all these gems of wisdom and information, and I really, um, really just felt connected to them and their story. And then I started to find all of these, like, um, I've started to find all of these connections, these um, links, you know, like there's this symbol that is in South America that's also found in China, that's also found in the Middle East, but how these people have the same symbols. Supposedly, Columbus discovered America. So, and these symbols are super old. So things just weren't adding up. You know, there was just symbols, the ancient secret of the flower of life. I had read that book, which was really powerful. It's about sacred geometry and spirituality. And um, I started to kind of see that there was some different stories out there and that the mainstream stuff that I had learned, um, that there was a lot of holes in it. And I started to question everything. And I was always that kind of guy, too. I always questioned everything. So um, I just became fascinated with it. And I, I didn't quite know why, but I was fascinated with it. And I liked learning about it. I liked reading about it. And I liked teaching it to people who didn't know, you know, about culture. Because, you know, people don't really know about culture. So a lot of times in the United States, too. People don't even know where they're from. I'm like, oh, what nationality are you? Like, I don't know, American? I'm like, uh, that's not a nationality, you know? Exactly. Like, where are you from? You're not Native American, so you're obviously something. Mm-hmm. They don't know. So I was just fascinated with all of it. 
and um, spirituality was kind of woven woven into all that. And um, and I had read a watched the documentary called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and it was about a test that they were doing at John Hopkins University or hospital uh, regarding uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and uh, patients suffering from post-traumatic stress. Uh, no, it, no, it wasn't a post-traumatic stress. It was just they were testing on a wide variety of different patients, and they were getting some research about the uh, experiences that people were having with dimethyltryptamine. And they had mentioned the word ayahuasca in there, but they didn't go into a lot of detail about ayahuasca. It's a little bit. It's more about DMT, which DMT is in ayahuasca. But so it wasn't really about the native indigenous culture. So years, uh, maybe a year later or something like that, a friend of mine introduced me to a woman. She was Brazilian. She lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We started talking. We started uh, essentially, you know, getting to know each other through Skype and phone call and all of that. And she asked me one day, she's like, have you ever heard of ayahuasca? I said, I heard of it and I know a little bit about it, but, um, I didn't know too much. And, um, she shared her experiences with me because in Brazil it was really popular. Oh, it was popular. It was common. It was legal. It was, uh, uh, you, you know, freedom of religious kind of acts used there for spirituality purposes. It comes from the Amazon jungle, which Brazil, you know, owns a big piece of the Amazon jungle. And I learned about plant medicine. And I thought that was really wild. So just like anything else, I went down the rabbit hole, you know. I just started learning and researching and studying and gathering information like I always do. I have a really strong mind so I can really collect it. And one day she called me and she's like, hey, like, you know, why don't we meet in person, all this? Like, would you want to come visit me? And I said, yeah, I would love that. You know, I was falling for her at the time. She's a beautiful Brazilian girl, Sao Paulo. I always felt really drawn to Brazil for whatever reason. And um, I went down there and I met her for the first time and we had fun time. We hung out and we went out to dinner and did lots of regular stuff. But we also went and did ayahuasca a bunch of times too while I was there. And I had a beautiful, grand experience. And I started to learn about the plants and how plants can teach us. And I thought that was really interesting because I never thought that you can learn from a plant. I mean, you learn from books, you learn from movies, you learn from experiences, you learn from people, but you learn from a plant like that sounds like a movie. Yeah, it sounds strange to someone on the outside looking in, right? Like, yeah, you and I have talked about this in a little bit outside the podcast, and um, you've definitely piqued my interest and my curiosity. Um, but I, I am curious about what you mean by that phrase. Like, <laughs> the plants are my teacher. Like, I learned from the plants. What does that actually translate to in the practical world in your mind? Ah, well, practical according to who, to right? Them, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so. In Native American traditions, everything has spirit, right? And just like in European traditions, we call, you know, things, everything has a soul, right? Oh, that dog has a soul, and that cat has a soul, right? Spirit, soul, call it what you want, right? Same thing. Um, in Native American culture, the plants have spirit, and each plant has spirit, and each plant has a hierarchy of spirit. Like, for example, let's just talk about the animal kingdom. Um... There's a difference between a jaguar and a mouse, right? 
And if I was to ask you, you know, what's more superior, you're probably going to say Jaguar. Yeah, and I would agree with you. Um, so there's a hierarchy in the animal kingdom, and we know about the hierarchy. We're familiar with it. It's not new news to us. And every ecosystem has their own hierarchy, you know. Cats are usually at the top. It doesn't matter what ecosystem there is in the world. Cats are usually at the top for some reason, whether it be the Serengeti, whether it be the jungle, the jaguar, the Bengal tiger in India, the mountain lion in the Americas, you know. So there's something really special about big cats, um, all cats really. Um, but there's a hierarchy in the jungle when it comes to plants. And um, ayahuasca uh, is a Quechua word. Uh, means vine of the soul, uh, vine of the dead, also referred to. Um, and Quechua is a language of the Amazon basin. It's the language that they used prior to the Spanish colonization. And uh, ayahuasca is a vine. And it's a vine that grows, and it's used uh, as a brew, like a tea, uh, boiled, boiled and over and over again with a leaf. Um, and the leaf is full of DMT, and they use um, uh, shakruna, or uh, some some guys use a leaf a plant called chalipanga. It's filled with DMT, and the vine and the plant allow for that DMT to become active in your body because the vine has this harmine, harmine that uh, M A O I, which is basically uh, it it allows this it blocks this enzyme from blocking the DMT essentially allowing the DMT to flow through your body so you have these um, spiritual, um, uh, transcendental experiences. And with over 80,000 species of plants in the, Amazon, in the Amazon jungle, the fact that these Native Americans, indigenous folks of that region, knew to take this leaf with this vine and mix these two and it's going to make that brew, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty divine. Um, so there's a lot of interesting history around it. Mm -hmm. I went, I drank it. I, I, I had an amazing experience and I connected with these plant teachers that I heard about and that they're referred to. And the best way I could describe it, it's like you're having a conversation with an entity and the entity is someone that, you know, it's not, a, it feels like a familiar person, like a friend. So talk a little bit more in depth about that because you know i think you know as a as an outsider you know and and a lot of people would be an outsider at this point although it is becoming more and more popular the idea of drinking right taking drug like an alcohol right you're basically numbing out you're checking out of the situation you are um not experiencing all of yourself sure. you're ex actually experiencing less of yourself sure but somehow in the case of something like ayahuasca um or the dmt scenario um the claim is different now you're under under the influence of a substance to a degree yes right but now the claim is different now you're saying well now i'm connecting i'm yes. not disconnecting right yeah so how do you reconcile the two right Good, yeah, really good, and, and I get it because you know I was under that same thinking pattern as well, you know, uh, drug, right? But ayahuasca is medicine; it's not a drug. It's it's medicine, and um, you know what's really interesting about that is that you know you drink this tea. You know, we are tribal people. We're tribal people, and I don't care if you're European descent. I don't care if your ancestors come from Europe. Europe was tribal as well. Just like North America was, just like 
present day Russia, present day Africa, present day everywhere. We are tribal people. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. And we used to do ceremonies and rituals and that kind of stuff. And that stuff is part of the human evolution. It's part of humanity. But we've lost our connection with nature a long time ago. Um, I don't know what the war on nature has been and who started that war, but it's been an interesting disconnection with nature. But the Native Americans, they've kept it alive. While the white man, the European descent, kind of left nature and you know, went to uh, building this, this, and that, um, the Native Americans, especially the people in the Amazon jungle, because they don't have the same kind of contact with the outside world, they're still living as if you know, they were five, 600 years ago in so many tribes. So they're still very connected with nature. Um, so they look at us like we're crazy. They're like, huh? You don't know about the plants that are indigenous to the area that you live in? Like, you're crazy. What do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. We think they're crazy. They think we're crazy. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I don't think most people even understand where the food they eat comes from. I mean, you're, you're asking them to know botany. Like, it's it's not going to happen in, in today's world. Yeah, and the people of the Amazon jungle, they're the botanists of the world. They're mm-hmm. the earth keepers. They are... Uh, you know, really responsible for that jungle and they take good care of it because that jungle provides pretty much a good portion of the oxygen for the rest of the world. It's like, it's like a big thing. It's like really important. And it's been abused for many years. It really started with the rubber tree plant foundation. Um, and they enslaved the native American, uh, indigenous people, those areas to build, to, uh, bleed the rubber trees to make rubber for like Ford products and stuff like that. Cars, manufacturing, um, they, you know, beat them over the head with, uh, you know, Catholicism and forced them into, uh, Catholicism in the name of Jesus Christ and, mm-hmm. you know, all of that and, and really, uh, were really nasty to them. Um, um, so they have a lot of, uh, indigenous people that have really retreated in the jungle there. And they have a lot of folks that are kind of halfway living in the city, halfway living in the jungle, but they have deep roots, ancestors in the jungle. Um, so yeah, this tea is, it's plant medicine. And they drink these plants in a ceremonial you know, setting and they connect with uh, essentially like Mother Earth, like the spirit of Mother Earth. And you have essentially conversation with her and your, your own spirit to really get some clarity as to what are you doing in your life and what's going really well and what's holding you back from your you know, full potential. Right. And so let's connect some dots around that. So sure. I know one of the things that uh, sort of led you down this path was this perpetual pain or this potential issue of having to go under the knife again, right? And not wanting to do that. And so you start looking around, you look into ayahuasca, um, you travel uh, to uh, Rio or Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo. I'm sorry. Yep. And um, you have this experience. So does this somehow connect back to your healing path as well? And if so, what does that look like from an ayahuasca slash emotional connection, healing, um, and in a physical manifestation of that in the body? I started to revolve, uh, resolve traumas that I weren't, wasn't even aware of. These were uh, suppressed emotions from childhood suppressed emotions from uh, my upbringing, teenage years. Um, And I had really uh, um, numbed myself emotionally uh, during my military time. And when I got out, I 
I did not express my emotions. I didn't know how to feel. I thought feeling was weakness. I saw feeling as weakness. Um, I just really egotistical, macho kind of stuff. I, I really was learning about the ego during my reading and studying, you know, post, you know, transformation. Uh, but the plants really teach you about ego and, you know, higher self. So I really started to resolve a lot of emotional trauma uh, that was going on in my life or had, had gone on in my life and really get some clarity about uh, who I was as a, I was a soul. I was a spirit. Like I never even really considered that. I was a spirit living in a physical body, not a physical body with a spirit. So I really started to make that connection with my soul, and I really started to change a lot of patterns in my everyday life. You know, I was being a lot, I was starting to experience this crazy thing called self-love. Like imagine that, like self-love, like loving yourself in a non-egotistical way and being okay with that. I started to be kinder to myself, kinder to the people around me. Um, I started to learn about energy. You know, how I was using energy wrong. You know what the first thing that I learned in ayahuasca in my first ceremony? She taught me about intention. And I, I, I know what intention means. I understand the word conceptually. Is it a big part of my vocabulary? And was I using it right? No, I wasn't. And what came to me was this. Let's just say you're at work, right? And you're typing an email. But you're at work. You're in a work environment. And you're writing an email to another coworker in another department, and you're pissed because they didn't get X, Y, and Z completed uh, in time, or they're behind schedule, or whatever it may be. And you're typing this letter, and you're making it look really professional, and really pretty, and really thoughtful. But in your heart, in your feeling body, you're saying "fuck you," "fuck you," and you're t- essentially attaching that energy to that email even though you're writing uh, very professional. When you hit send and they read that, they may read all that fancy shit that you wrote, but they're, they're still getting the fuck you. And we do that every single day of our lives with our thoughts and our words, and we use them unconsciously. So essentially the plant just started to wake me up, just wake up, start to be more conscious of things that I wasn't aware of, start to be more conscious of the emotional uh, issues that I had unresolved in my life, and all of the bad things that I was doing to myself, the numbing, the bad behavior, the overworking, whatever it may be, I started to be more kinder to myself. And that's when I really started to see big shifts. You know, it was real big shifts because I was putting this stuff into action and um, getting real clarity over some of the things that were holding me back in my life. So when you were talking about the idea of intention as it relates to you know, putting energy into that email that you're about to send. I totally get that, right? You know, like there's so much lost, uh, you know, in text messaging, for example, but you can still read between the lines, yes. right? You always pick it up. You always right? feel it. You always feel it. You yeah. feel when somebody's mad at you. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Even though the email doesn't say that or the text doesn't say it, you feel it. You feel it. You totally feel it. Yeah. But as you're talking, the word that came to my mind was integrity. Like, you know, if I want to say fuck you, but I'm sending all these flowery words, I'm really out of alignment with how I'm feeling in that moment. Absolutely. Right. And there's got to be some sort of price to be paid for that sort of dissonance, I would think. We can walk through life unconsciously. And there's a lot of folks doing that and bump into walls and do stuff and create. We can really create a muck 
with our mind, in our thoughts, in our bad self-talk, in our negative kind of uh, uh, views, in our bad perceptions. We can do all that. Um, and it's a shame because a lot of it's unconscious. People don't even, not even aware what a shitstorm they're making in their own life. But they're victim, right? They're victim. You know, it's oh no, it's external. Everything's external. The world's coming at me. We don't realize how much ability we have to shape our everyday existence just by the way we think, what we, f- how we feel, our beliefs, all of those different things. So I really started to learn. Uh, the power in all of this, these kind of universal laws is kind of what I like to refer them to. And the plants really opened me up to that. And it's, yeah, it's been a wonderful journey. And I've, you know, journeyed a lot with the plants. And I think I've had maybe about 70 or so different ceremonies. And I've uh, assisted in ceremonies and worked in that capacity where I'm now, uh, you know, I've been a guide, guiding people on their journey and really learning uh, the customs and traditions of the the folks of the Amazon basin. Uh, so it's been a really wonderful experience. Yeah. That's super cool that your like your first experience was actually, it sounds like it was an authentic one, you know, one that um, was deeply connected to the roots of the ceremony. And it's cool to have you sort of bring it, you know, bring it into being, bring it back. Um, but I'm curious, like if you, you know, now this deep in, right, do you still find that it's necessary? Do you feel, do you still find that you learn something every time? It elevates. So, um, all right, I like this example. Like you're on a plane, right? Yeah. And the plane's going down and you want to be helpful. And uh, the oxygen masks drop, right? And if you start trying to help people on the plane without putting on your oxygen mask, how much help are you? Very little. Very little help. You want to help the kid next to you, the little boy in front of you, the old lady two rows ahead. You better put on your oxygen mask if you're going to be of any help. Mm. So all of this kind of deep work for the folks that are interested in deep work, it's about yourself first. It's a me show, and that's okay. The me, me, me show is what I like to call it. But it's not ego-based. No, point. it's not ego-based, but yeah. you, you're cleaning. You're getting rid of your stuff. You're raising your vibration. You're, you're purging you know, these old emotions. You're, you're doing that deep self-work. Well, eventually you get to a point where it's like, okay, you know, well, why do you keep coming back? You know, like, it's not a party. You're throwing up. Like, it's not something you'd want to take and go to a concert, that's for sure. No way. It's work. It's deep work. That's what's so wonderful about ayahuasca is it's really hard to abuse because it tastes really, really bad. Yeah. Horrible. And there's this purging part of it. So there's you know, no reason for you to be anywhere social. Yeah. So by purging, he means you're literally throwing, puking, up. throwing up. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, is, is a, like a fear element for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. But when we first started talking about this, you described that very interestingly. And this was one of the reasons that I was open at that moment when we had this conversation because of the way that you described it. And I'm probably going to fuck this up, but I'll let you correct me. Sure. But you said something to the effect of, um, you know, a lot of times when people go the route of a plant medicine or a drug, they're looking for a quick fix in some sense of the word. But with this experience with ayahuasca, you're actually paying a price. Like you're actually having to do the work. And in the process of doing the work, you earn your response, your reward, your, you know, sort of, I guess you'd say enlightenment on the other side. Like there's the, whatever you learned about yourself, you had to pay a price to get there. It wasn't just given to you. Exactly. It's not just given to you. You go on the journey, you know, typically you're in a tribal kind of group and a group of people, everybody's there kind of all in it together. 
you know, everybody's there. It's like this mutual respect, like, hey, you know, we're all, try- we're, we're all here trying to be better people, and that's honorable. And you're all in the room, and you go on this journey, and you're going to purge, most likely, and you might feel a little sick, and you might cry. Imagine that, right? Even if you're a big, tough guy, you might cry, you know? And um, you're going to have these emotional, energetic releases, and that's what it is. You're releasing energy. We're not even aware that we release energy. Our thought process is, oh, I drank too much alcohol. That means I have too much beer in my stomach. That means it makes me want to throw up. And I got sick. And when I throw up, I feel better. Well, yes, um, you're going to be throwing up the fluid of the alcohol, right, in, an, in that scenario. But what we don't realize is how we purge energies. We all know that crying is a release. And in our culture, what do they say to a man? Oh, you better not cry. You know, so it's basically don't release those emotions. Yeah, just which, stuff that shit down. Man. Yeah, which is horrible advice, you right. know. Um, but energetically, a lot of us, we carry um, emotions in our solar plexus, in our gut, in our stomach. Like when we have that high anxiety, you know. Like when I was really at my worst, when I was describing my... Um, you know, situation at corporate when I was experiencing pain. I woke up every single morning for years and I spent my shower in the morning gagging. I would gag. My ex-girlfriend would be like, what is wrong with you? You're gagging again? I was releasing energy because my anxiety was so high. My body had to purge some of it just to kind of stay back online. And that's how it manifested itself for you. Yes. And this was a regular occurrence. I didn't know what it was. I would just thought indigestion. I knew I was stressed because like mentally I knew like there was stuff that I was thinking about or dealing with that I wasn't happy. But I didn't put the two to two together. When you drink ayahuasca, you release energy emotionally. So you're not purging like a lot of actual fluid because you've been fasting like typically the week prior in many ways but energetically you have these interesting very weird sounds that come out and then you have the crying and a lot of emotional releases there so in the native american tradition they call throwing up getting well where in our tradition here is getting sick Um, so releasing emotions whether you do it physically through you know people do uh, dance and yoga and different things like that crying it's all healthy. It's like it's energetic cleansing. And I knew nothing about that in the past, and I'm, I'm very familiar with that now. And I see people, you know, like I said, participated in many ceremonies, seeing a lot of variety of different people coming through, um, do a lot of energy release. So it's for sure. important for us to do that. The getting well piece completely makes sense to me, you know, because that's actually what's happening. Your body is literally trying to, you know, release something that's causing a problem, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we say getting sick, but that's not actually what's happening. It's the, it's the opposite. And I can completely relate to the crying aspect of what you're referring to. I did a seminar. Oh shit. It's been quite a few years ago now, but one of the elements of the seminar was you had to climb a 40 foot telephone pole and you had to stand on the top of it, like the very top of it. Like there's no platform. It's it's just like a 12 inch disc on the top of a telephone pole and you had to stand there. And then you had to jump off and try to grab some, some sort of trapeze, right? Now you're strapped in, so like you're not going to die. die yeah. But everyone has this tremendous fear of heights and sure. falling, right? There's always this, this thing of falling. Sure. So I remember having my turn, you know, and, and being like scared shitless because I don't like heights. I don't even like getting on a ladder. But uh, so I did it. You know, I kind of grunted my way through it. And I came down and I sat at the bottom of the pole and I watched other people go through their journey up the pole, right? And there was this one lady, and I'll never forget her 
as long as I live. She got about two thirds of the way up and you could see like fear just grip her body. And she was looking up at where she wanted to go. And she was looking down at where she had come from, looking back up, looking back down. And you could see the terror in her face. Right. And at that point she had to make a decision. Right. And so she stood there and paused. But the minute she made that decision to go, something else came over her. Mm. Right. And I remember just sitting there and watching her do this. And I just started bawling because there was a part of me that was like, I was letting go of because I was seeing her break through her fears. Yeah. And it was like signaling to me, you know what? You can do more. Like you don't have to be afraid. Like it's just a thing. You just do it, right? And you're going to be fine on the other side. And when that happened, it opened a can of worms for me because every other person that went and had a similar experience, I cried for every one of them. I just couldn't stop. And it's okay to feel too. Yeah. Feeling is a good thing. 100%. You know, we rely so much on our mind, mind, analytical, logical thinking, and we don't feel and um it's a big it's a big epidemic it's a real epidemic and a lot of people are really rooted in their mind and i say that with confidence because i see people you know come through uh uh, workshops that i do and ceremonies and i talk to a wide variety of different people you know uh, socioeconomic uh doesn't matter race culture ultra conservative ultra liberal doesn't matter it's all the same things and it's a lot of people rooted in their mind, overactive mind, hyper-thinking, high anxiety, bad self-talk, can't go to sleep at night, and that kind of stuff manifests in a body and it creates illness and inflammation and sickness and all of that kind of stuff. And it's typically not considered the emotional body, the emotional state. So the plants have taught me a lot about that and gave me a really good framework and understanding about myself and then it allowed me to be in service to others. It also taught me how to play music. I never played music. I was like, I was like a non-musical guy. I just considered myself. Uh, I don't play music. I, you know, I wasn't born with that gift. You know, one of those. And uh, I had learned in ceremony that I needed to contribute musically. So I started learning, and it started with a rattle, or shaker, or maraca, what they would call it. And then that translated into rhythm and drums. And then it started to bring me back to when I was young. I said, I remember when I was young. I used to love to dance. And I had good rhythm. I always had good rhythm. But I just suppressed that, you know. So all that talk that they say about, you know, you know, being free and, you know, going back to the, the way you used to behave when you were a kid and you were free, like that's really therapeutic in many ways. Um, but most people don't understand it. They're like, well, I got stuff to do. I can't just go be a kid anymore. I got bills to pay. <laughs> right, right. You know, but they don't get it. Like, you know, you have time and it's important to dedicate the time to doing, you know, healthy, healthy things. So, yeah, so the plants were my teacher and the plants were the shaman's teacher. And the shamans always said that, you know, they were all mm-hmm. really clear about that and really specific. I mean, so um, we could spend a whole episode on the different types of spirits and plants, there's a whole hierarchy of them. Like they're almost like comic heroes in a sense, you know? There's like tabaquito, which is the like the armed guard, the tobacco plant, and that plant is really powerful and you use that they they're like the guards of the jungle and that spirit blocks out any negative bad energies and then they have the La Madre, the ayahuasca, and she's the mother, you know, mother of the jungle, mother earth, you know, Pachamama. Then you have, you know, Bobansana and all these different plants, and they all have different characteristics, almost like, like, like comic heroes. It's really, it was really fascinating 
the way they talked about them and the connection. And the songs are actually the ikoros, they call them. They're actually the plants uh, vibrating through them, the plants singing through them. The plants actually teach them those songs. And those vibratory sounds are healing and therapeutic for the body, just like a didgeridoo has a healing element to that sound, that frequency, just like a gong, just like a singing bowl. All these ancient instruments were used for healing. Mm-hmm. You know, Not just, oh, that's a cool song. I like that. I'm going to save it on my playlist. No. That's when music has been dumbed down. Music's been dumbed down. But we all know that the universe is vibration. We are vibration. We're essentially atoms. That's why music has such an effect on our emotional body. We hear a song and you cry and you're emotionally attached to that song. Or it puts you in a good mood or a song puts you in a bad mood. It can affect your state. So sound is really powerful. Um, and I learned a lot about that stuff through the plants. Um, and then, you know, I started seeing this guy on documentary talking about the cold is his teacher and i said wait what there's other <laughs> teachers around here besides the plants and that intrigued my my interest in the, the wim hof method right on right on yeah man that's uh it was it was cool to like encounter you as a different person uh when we did the wim hof some uh, seminar this past weekend because like you said right we were very different people um, you are very different from how I remembered. Absolutely. I mean, walking around with a drum and, you know, instructing people in something that they've never done before. And one of the things that you said that uh, I think is just universally true is, you know, how similar our experiences are as people. And as we went around the room, right, everyone was sharing their stories and their journeys. And there's not a single person in the room who hadn't had some sort of, you know, trauma or some sort of event that has caused them to have some sort of emotional pain, some suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Some suffering. Right. And, and like there, you have to have a way to exercise that demon. And, um, I think for me looking at the development world, that is the one common thread is this, everyone comes in, you know, you're on equal playing field on, on equal footing. No one cares if you've got a dollar or a million dollars or, you know, a fancy car or no car, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just like, Hey, we're here. We've experienced some crazy shit. Uh, let's air it. Let's deal with it. Let's see if we can find a way to elevate one another. Yeah, human. Yeah, the human touch. You know, 100%. human element. You know? We're all human. We're all one. We're all connected. You know, we're just every. We wake up. We're born, and we're just constantly being separated from birth. You're a male. You're a female. You're this religion. You're that religion. You're this color. You're that color. You're this religion. It's just constant separation. You know. And you see it in everyday life. I just see people always separating themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, north and south in the United States, the Yankees and the Southerners or the liberals (laughs) and the Republicans. It's just everything is separation, separation, separation. It's like, I just want to slap everybody. Like, no, we're all connected. We're all human. We're all one. We're all really powerful. We're all gifted. We all chose to come to this world to live out this experience for whatever reason, you know, like we need to stop shitting on each other. Yeah. The difference is, uh, it seems like a, just a focus on the minutia, like a focus on the margins that don't really matter. Like the difference between, um, political opinion, you know, vast majority of people agree on the majority of what they talk about. Exactly. It's like, okay, let's disagree on this 10% over here and hate each other, you know, or like uh, religion, right? Like Catholicism versus, you know, the Protestant religions, it's basically the same thing, right? Like we're just doing different, oh, uh, different rituals, yeah. but like, who cares, right? Like it doesn't even matter. And yet you see multiple denominations of religion spring up because someone sprinkles and someone else baptizes. Who gives a shit, right? Like you think Jesus cares 
you know, like, do you think he really cares? Like if that's your belief system, right? Yeah. The us versus them is really toxic for humanity. Um, unfortunately, religion has been a big part of that separation. In my personal opinion, you see it with the Shiites and the Sunnis. Yeah, it's everywhere. The you world see it over. With the Protestants and the Catholics, when Ireland and Britain were at each other's throats over it, you see it everywhere, in many different ways, shapes, and forms. So, you know, it's always really important to just remember the the unity and the oneness of, you know, of everything, and really treating everybody with respect. You know, I travel a lot outside the country, and I go to a lot of foreign places and I don't like the resorts. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to travel out and live on a, you know, some artificial, artificial resort and take a bunch of pictures. I like to get out in the town and I like to mix with the locals. Yeah. I've never understood that really like a a resort here is the same as a resort somewhere else. Like if you want to take a fun, you know, photo at a resort, you can do that without leaving your, your hometown. Yeah. And I go and I mix and mingle, you know, and people always say like my fam stuff like oh you, aren't you scared it's dangerous over you know every everything outside <laughs> the united states is so dangerous you yeah, know yeah. um i hate to break it to everybody in the united states like there's these crazy school shootings like people are getting killed just going to school like, <laughs> it's dangerous here too folks it can um, be yeah you know so you know i go into different places i don't take unnecessary risks like i'm calculated i'm not you know gonna go to the favela you know at midnight in brazil and think that everyone's gonna be cool to me i'm not stupid Um, but I take calculated risks, but you know something when I travel and even around town, I treat everybody with respect. I look them in the eye, give people a smile, you know, I uh, try to find a way to build people up, you know, I just treat people with respect and my energy vibrates that. And, uh, you know, I stay out of harm's way for that reason. And I really trust that. I really believe that. So, um, I think we have a lot more influence and than we think we do sometimes. hundred percent. Do you think that, uh, plants as teachers do you think that this can be sort of a bridge for people who are kind of hardwired to to think us versus them you know to focus on the margins as opposed to seeing themselves as as part of a whole people got to be ready to change you know uh it's got to be like we're all blessed with this powerful you know uh gift of free will free will is really powerful and it you know it's uh you can use it here in this you know uh this earth plane if you'd like to call it that and the free will is really powerful trumps all and um if you're not ready to change and you're not interested in changing then you know there's nothing for you to learn at that moment i guess but um if you are interested um there's lots of resources and it's all around us and it's abundant the elements of nature have a lot to teach us but we've been so disconnected with the elements that you know we don't even think that we should be learning from them at all mm-hmm. we just we took it out of the textbook that elements teach us and you are starting to see a rise in this you know i like to look at the biohacking community biohacking's like this new trendy kind of cool word and you know, people are like trying to do all these hacks to essentially create a physiological response to uh, get some sort of health or performance uh, advantage, right? And let's just look at cold water. Well, cold water has been used for thousands of years. It's nothing new. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the indigenous people of the Andes Mountains had ceremonial rituals using glacier cold water to restore the vital energy of the of the person going into the cold water. 
And it was also treated for depression. It was treated for a variety of different things. And animals know about it too. Uh, that cold water is therapeutic if they're injured or hurt. You know, like nature knows this. And they know that the cold water has its energy and its energy is great for this, this, and that. Um, but we, you know, we, we stopped thinking about those things. But now the biohacking community is bringing it back. So you're starting to see cryotherapy popping up all over the country. So it's basically the human engineering using, you know, kind of old methodologies with new technology. Um, I like to look at saunas the same way, the infrared saunas. They're wonderful. There's great science coming out of them. Sci saunas are nothing new. Um, the fin fin people from Finland, Finnish, I think that's how you say it. People have been using saunas as kind of part of their culture for a really long time. Mm -hmm. The Turkish bathhouses. Sweats. Yeah. yeah. And then you got yeah. the Native American sweat lodge yep. and uh, Temescal in uh, Mexico using heat, the fire element, to create a physiological and spiritual response that was really energetically healing and purifying for human beings. Um, and the biohacking community is starting to mimic some of those things, and there's good science on stuff. And so, uh, yeah, we're learning. And sound healing is another one. So mm -hmm. I like to compare sound hearing to binaural beats. You could find all kinds of binaural beats, and they're therapeutic, and it puts you in theta. And, you know, people pretending like this is new shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, dude, like, it's not new. A didgeridoo is the oldest wind <laughs> instrument on the planet. Right. We don't even know how old that instrument is from the Aborigines. And that sound, mm -hmm. you know, that can put you in theta and um, delta waves. Um, so, no, you didn't invent it. Yeah, it's just, just beat, like the, the... But it's just new modern technology. 100%, just like the voice, right? The voice is the oldest instrument, and you've got monks who sang low tones. Yes, the throat right? singing. Yeah, and all same that. sort of a thing, right? Like, it's it's not new stuff, but it's funny because it's been kind of shelved, and now it seems like, oh, well, we're going to repackage it, <laughs> and we're going to market it as something new, and come up with a trendy term like yeah. biohacking. Yeah. And, you know, now all of a sudden it's sexy because everybody wants to live forever. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yes, people, it's people, true. people think that we're, you know, 50 years from the singularity, you know, where you can fuse your body with a computer and live forever. And yes. who knows? Maybe that's true. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, this idea of longevity, I mean, comes down to some really simple ideas that have simple. been around for yeah. centuries. Everything is just more simple. A lot of simple practice principles we our mind overcomplicates a lot of things 100 percent. but you know in all this biohacky stuff like i'm okay with it like as long as people are learning about it i just you know my messages and i preach and i talk about you know just maintaining the origins and the traditions and understanding where this stuff came from and just educating people because they don't know and that's okay you know mm -hmm. why would they know it's not taught you know so i i've learned about these things and i've experienced these things and you know and i share it so and that's beautiful man I think uh, I think I'd like to ask you if you'd be up for coming back and going a little deeper into the ayahuasca and then into the Wim Hof stuff because I don't want to keep you all night uh, for those of you guys who are tuning in uh, Mike came came to the house late for dinner and uh, um, so he's I've, I've been keeping him away from his place for about four or five hours now so no worries yeah, yeah I would love to come back yeah for sure well let's do that man because I want to go deeper with some of this stuff and pick your brain and I want to I want to really honor the message that you're putting forth by giving it the time it deserves. Um, so if you're cool with that, man, why don't we call it here? We'll call this part one Deal. and then we'll do a part two and go deep. Cause I really want to get into the Wim Hof stuff. Yeah, that was cool. And I want to learn about your experience. Yeah, as man. Well. We got to talk about that. Um, you, you made me get into an ice bath <laughs> <laughs> or at least talk me into it. And, uh, you know, I had some, some profound, um, realizations going through that process, some of which I shared with you already. 
But um, yeah, so why don't you tell uh, everyone listening where they can get in touch with you um, if they want to learn more about the Wim Hof or maybe some plant medicine stuff, and uh, we'll call it. Absolutely, yeah. So I have a Facebook page that I use. It's uh, Michael the Ark, and um, you know I uh, use that Facebook page to uh, advertise uh, local events that I'm having, which is the typically the Wim Hof Method Fundamentals course, which is like you know uh, the basics, the fundamentals. Um, then after folks go through the fundamentals, then we do a group session and that's about community and networking and there's some sound healing and stuff involved in that, but it's uh, breathing exercises, cold therapy and mindset training is what I teach, uh, which are the three pillars of, of the Wim Hof method. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Michael underscore the underscore arc, A-R-C, and I'm pretty active on Instagram, so follow me and, um, I put out some uh, different information about my experiences, learning, and then also advertise upcoming workshops. And I'm developing my website. It's uh, in progress, making good progress on the website. It's uh, www.michaelthearc.com. And I'll be opening a, a center in Arcadia on Indian School Road in Phoenix, and it's called Optimize. And you can find us on Facebook right now. Uh, it's spelt a little different because, you know, it's hard to grab domain names, so it's... <laughs> Uh, O-P-T-I-M-Y-Z-E dot me, optimize dot me. And that's going to be a center that incorporates all of the ancient kind of teachings and methodologies with a modern look. Uh, The four elements of nature, air, fire, water, earth. Very cool. Very cool. Guys, I want to encourage you to reach out to Michael. Super cool guy. Um, you know, one of the most chill laid back guys you'll ever meet and super knowledgeable. That's the big thing and very genuine. And, uh, I've enjoyed every moment that I've spent with him. um, you know, at every point in our relationship. And, uh, I only see that getting stronger. So brother, I just want to let you know, I appreciate you and I want to send everyone I can your way. I think the work that you're doing is super valuable. Um, and I would encourage everyone to at least give it a look, right? You got nothing to lose. Just look at it. If it's for you, great. If it's not, that's cool too. It's all love. And uh, with that said, this is Jason signing off on behalf of Michael. We'll see you in the next episode of Hardwater Radio. Take care.